Good morning, and I welcome you to this part of our service. I greet you in Jesus' name. Certainly, I have enjoyed the Sunday school lesson and, and the songs and devotionals so far. And uh, what I have to share is maybe uh, just a little bit of an extension of that, or maybe a little different uh, direction of what we've thought about so far this morning. Turn with me to Third John this morning. This is more of a springboard verse than a text necessarily, I guess. Book of Third John is a very short little letter that John wrote to his friend Gaius, and uh, we're not going to elaborate much on this. But I'm going to read the um, the first four verses. It says, "The elder unto the well beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Behold, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth." For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And I'm going to stop there. The, the text verses, verse 4 there. I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in truth. Now, I don't think that John was necessarily um, referring to his blood children here. It seems like he had... Uh, Gaius here in mind when he was talking about that, and and John seems to and like the term children. If you read through his books, first and second and third John, he he uses that a lot to relate to um, people that would have been under his care spiritually. He refers to them as children. However, uh, this morning I would like to uh, like to think about it as actually our posterity, our children, and the. Uh, the title of my message this morning is Promoting Godly Convictions to Our Children. And I changed that title. I had originally um, uh, put down Instilling Godly Convictions in Our Children, but I changed that because as I, as I, as I thought about it, as I studied this, uh, these, um, this sermon here, I come with, someone came to the conclusion that I'm not sure how much I can actually instill in my children, to instill something means that I will I will work toward. Um, e- eventually, I will come to a place where my ch- child has imbibed my uh, beliefs, okay, my convictions, and and they will they will take them in. and And I guess you can do that to some point, but um, as we move through this message, you, you'll maybe come to understand why I believe promoting is a better is maybe a better way to think about it. When you promote something, you believe in it yourself, and you are you are you're excited about it, and you are um, modeling that to um, your children or to others that observe you. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the child or the person or those observing you will necessarily pick that up and it will be instilled in them. It's no different than uh, Justin and I when we sell seed. We're excited about the seed we sell. We believe we have good seed and, and we promote that. We believe it. But not everybody buys from us. You know, there's just some people we can instill that into them, you know? And so um, even though we promote it, not everybody not everybody believes it, I guess, or whatever. So that's kind of the, the delineation I make there between that. But what John is saying here is that and when he thinks about all the things that make him joyful and brings joy to his life, and I'm not sure what all those things were, but I'm sure it was more than one thing, he said the one that tops them all 
is whenever I hear about my children, in his case, his spiritual children, that are walking in truth. And I got to believe that I could concur with John on that. To hear about people that I perhaps have a relationship with, and especially my children, who I have a very special relationship with, to see them walk in truth is something I would say tops the list of things that bring me joy. So you might wonder why I landed on this particular topic here this morning. And I'll tell you why I did. So it's no news to you that I have interest in historical things, and church history especially. And I was recently reading an article that was written by a brother back in the late 70s. And during the 60s and 70s, it's no news to any of you that that was the time that what we know as the conservative Mennonite churches were congealing. They were finding their footing. They were somewhat coming to grips with where they wished to be as far as application to doctrine and those sorts of things. And this brother wrote this article, and he said, okay, he said, we now find ourselves at a place where we have a lot of good things that we are practicing and things that we believe in. But he said largely those practices and those applications to doctrine have come to pass because of settled convictions in our hearts that have brought us to this place. It's not so much that people were telling us this is what we should do, as much as we believed it, and the people that believed that found each other, and they encouraged each other, and the momentum was coming from within. But now he said, now that we have this momentum going, and we kind of have a, we're at a place that we're satisfied, that we have reached a place of godliness that we are excited about. He said, how are we going to convince our children that that's something that they should be excited about as well? And the man made a good point. You know, they had been through a lot, that generation had been through a lot that had brought them to a place where they were. Their children, as he recognized, would not have to fight for that, okay? So how can they be convinced that what was fought for, for their good, it was worthy of them picking up as they move forward? How could they do that? And it is somewhat of a conundrum. Any movement will not survive long. You can take this even outside of a religious perspective. A business, an organization, a family even, it will not survive. The principles, the things that we wish to promote will not survive if what we are promoting is not embraced by those following us or those around us who have not experienced some of the warfare of getting there, but they have to believe that it's worth it, okay? So they have to take our word for it. I tried to think of an example, and I landed on this one, and I'm not sure if it's a good example, but think of it this way. So 20-some years ago, Darla and I decided that we had reached a crisis in our dairy career that 
we no longer enjoyed daring, and we knew something had to take place if we were going to continue to do this. And so we became what was known as a grazing dairy, all right? So, and that worked for us, and we're, we're happy of, uh, of how, about how those things have worked out. And that's no reflection on you here that don't do that. That's fine. I just wasn't as smart as you all, so we had to go another direction. But anyway, we, um, we, we did that, and, and we're satisfied with it, okay? Now, my older children may remember some of that uh, frustration that we went through, some of the personal and, and other frustration that we went through that led us to that decision. But my 15-year-old sons do not. All they know is that we turn cows out on grass. That's all they know. They have to take my word for it that this is a good way to do it. They, they have to just believe me because they have not experienced anything else. Now, perhaps when they do Laverne's milking, they say, well, this would be a better way to do it. I don't know. We haven't had that conversation, Laverne. But, but anyway, you, you get the point. There's, they have not been through the trenches like I have been. And you could take that, you could take that um, illustration in, in different directions. That, that is one that came to me. We see it playing out in our society. Um, there is, at the beginning of this, the history of this country, people sacrificed for this, this, the founding of this country. Now, this is a very um, secular way of illustrating it, but today, sacrifice for society is almost unknown. It's all about what can I get out of it? How can I, how can society serve me? It's nothing about service. And so that conviction, if you will, that I have to contribute to society is gone. And we could give other illustrations, but I'll stop there. What is a conviction? Maybe we should just define that first. A conviction, according to the dictionary, is a firmly held belief or opinion. And it stopped there. I'm going to add a little bit to that. A conviction is a firmly held belief or opinion that dictates how I will act or think and heavily influences my decisions. That's a conviction. I suppose that this particular word is uh, probably unique to maybe our Mennonite culture. For sure, I think a conservative Christian culture, I think we could probably take it a little broader than just a, a Mennonite necessarily. And I suppose it probably isn't a word that's often used in other settings. I don't know if I went out and took a person in Rochester and said, now, do you have any convictions about anything? If he would even know what I'm talking about, I'm not sure. I'm rather, I rather doubt it. But it's a word that we, we use, and I think we understand it. We tend to put a premium on conviction and have admiration for people persons who practice something out of a conviction. And on the contrast, we tend to have concern about someone who is doing something but has no conviction for it. Because we know the roots of that person are shallow at best. That puts a person in a, in a vulnerable position. And they're very vulnerable to harmful influences. And their position is not reliable. Okay, because they're only doing it for whatever reason, but it's not out of a conviction. Now, I'm not saying that um, that it's not okay to do a thing just because it's expected and honorable. It's okay to use that as a motivation. 
But what I am saying is the odds of such a person continuing that practice is much lower than the person that's doing it out of, convic out of conviction. And I think it should be the goal of all of us to carefully evaluate why we might be doing anything that we are doing. Why am I doing it after all? I would say that it's not a good feeling to be practicing a thing or professing belief in a thing when I know in the depths of my heart that I do not have a conviction for this matter. I know that whenever I get tested, things will probably not go well. Again, I would say it's a, it's a particular challenge to us as conservative Christians who want to raise our children in the fear of the Lord. Um, we belong to a church that believes that there is a need for to find practical application to principles in the Bible. And we do that. And we practice things literally. We find ways to do that. But when we have a long-established church model based on Scripture, and we do these things and we practice them together as a brotherhood, that, that's a good thing. It has done tremendous good things for us through the years. However, there's an inherent challenge that goes with that. Once we have come, just like this brother I, I was talking about in the, in the beginning of the, of the talk here, once we come to a place that we are, I, I, I almost hate to use the word satisfied, because I don't know if we ever should be just satisfied. I guess the impression that we're just ho-hum coasting. But I use that for a lack of better, a better term. Again, how do I convince my children that is a legitimate application to biblical principle and worthy of them taking it up? Let's further think about this thing of conviction. A person with conviction, this morning, I am defining as a person that is convinced in his heart, as I mentioned earlier, of a matter and not only is he convinced in his, in his heart of this matter, but because he's convinced and because he wishes to protect that, he will set up personal boundaries around himself so that he will not be either misunderstood or yield himself to unnecessary temptation. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you this example. The Bible says that we should not commit adultery. We understand that. We should not be immoral people. And I, I would hope that every one of us here this morning has that conviction. I have no doubt that we do. Now, um, just this past Friday night, um, we had some company, and um, this man was was telling Justin and I, Justin and Stephanie were over, and this, this guy was telling us that in their church they had a um, they had a uh, a lady that had fallen onto hard times, and there was a a single guy that gave this lady a place to live in his apartment, okay, because she needed a place to live. He had an extra bedroom, and so he said, you can come live in my apartment. Now, um, this, this was to the consternation of some people there in his church because this didn't look good. It didn't appear good. We have this single person living with a single guy in an apartment, now, they contested that there was not, nothing untoward going on. But all anybody has to go on is their word. It doesn't look right, okay? That's probably not setting up a very good boundary. 
If the man wanted to give this lady a place to live, perhaps he should have moved out of the apartment or something. I, I don't know. But do you, you follow what I'm saying? If I really don't believe in that, then why would I put myself in a place where I would be suspect or it would look funny, okay? Furthermore, if I don't believe in that, um, should I be texting or calling people or other ladies that are not my wife and speaking to them if I don't believe in, in committing adultery? Would, that, would you have any problem with that? Or perhaps I could uh, eat out with a, another lady. Should I do that? You follow what I'm saying? If I really have a conviction about that, I won't do those things, even though those particular acts aren't necessarily committing adultery. It is. It smells wrong. It looks wrong. It's probably going to lead to a place that is wrong. A person of conviction, furthermore, I believe is predictable and he is consistent. Not long ago, I heard a young person make this comment that she believed that modesty looks different at home than on the beach. See, I don't agree with that. See, that's not consistent. That's not, that's not um, predictable. Uh, so if I'm within 10 feet of water, suddenly things look different. No, I don't think God thinks so. Well, in the Bible, interestingly enough, there is not a lot of discussion or instruction specifically on this topic that I'm addressing this morning. The teaching is much more implied or perhaps anecdotal in, in, on ways that we can enhance our probability of this taking place. Generally on this topic, I would say we draw heavily from the book of Proverbs. It is interesting to me that Proverbs, there's a lot of of, um, burden placed upon the the son. If you remember, if if you just think about the, the book of Proverbs, it says, you know, my son, pay attention to your father. My son, do this. My son, do that. And it seems like the, there's a burden placed, a heavy burden placed on the son in that particular book. But it's not without instruction to the fathers and parents as well to make sure that that teaching is taking place. But it does suggest, I would say, that the loss of continuity and faith does play fairly heavily on the child not paying attention. It is also of some interest to me that as I look through especially the Old Testament where we have, um, now that's a different era of time and I understand that, but it is, it is some, of some interest to me how many uh, men of God, you might say, had trouble passing that onto their children, that, that godliness that they enjoyed and practiced. They had, they had issues passing that on to their children. Uh, ones that just come to mind quickly is Eli. You know the story. These vile sons doing vile things in broad daylight. And Eli, you know, he just seemed, seemed like he didn't get it. And, and God did reprimand him for that. And uh, his punishment was that his seed was annihilated. But interestingly enough, Samuel, for all the good Samuel did, his sons weren't a whole lot better. Uh, that's one of the reasons Israel ended up with a king, because Samuel's sons were interested in bribes, and they were not trustworthy people. And it seems like there was some problems there, too. Recently, I was reading through um, Kings, and we come to Hezekiah. 
one of the best kings of Judah. Who was his son? Manasseh. One of the absolute worst. And it was because of a Manasseh that God finally said, this people will go into captivity. We had a few good kings after Manasseh, but if you look back, it was during the reign of Manasseh that God said, these people's cup is full, the, 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 the people of Judah will go into captivity because of Manasseh. Interestingly enough, um, Conrad Grebel, who was often talked about as one of the three founding fathers, if you will, of Anabaptism, his children didn't fare so well either. He had a grandson that was a burgomaster of the town of Zurich there, and what was it, his great-grandson? Oh, I'm sorry, his grandson was a member of the state church, and his great-grandson became the burgomaster of Zurich. Um, not, didn't do real well. But interestingly enough, uh, probably a large percentage of that problem was that his wife never imbibed the faith that he did. And that probably played heavily into how things played out there. Well, there's silence on other men. Moses, how did his children turn out? We don't know. We know he had some, but we don't know how they really turned out. Um, Peter, we know he was married. We maybe assume he had children. But again, we have no testament as to how things turned out there. Paul did give some credit uh, in the case of Timothy that his mother and grandmother probably did play some, some um, role in his embracing of the faith. The only verse that I could really find in the New Testament speaking directly to fathers is in Ephesians 6, 4. It says, Ye fathers, promote, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Why would, you, why would a person do that? Well, it was so those children would go on to embrace that and bring their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I do believe. For the, for the rest of this sermon, turn with me to Jeremiah 35. This, this particular chapter probably is the best example of, that we have in the, in the Bible of a people that, that somehow, um, the great grandfather in this situation, and probably a few more greats added on to that, was able to instill values and, if you will, convictions in his children that stuck with them for, to my calculation, somewhere around 300 years. I'm going to just read this chapter, and then we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. And the, word, and the word which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go into the house of the Rechabites, and speak unto them, and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. Then I took Jezaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Abazaniah and his brethren and all his sons and the whole house of the Rechabites and I came and I brought them into the house of the Lord into the chamber of the sons of Hanan the son of Igdaliah a man of God which was by the chamber of the princes which was above the chamber of Maasiah the son of Shalem the keeper of the door and I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites pots of wine and cups, and I said unto them, Drink ye wine. But they said, We will not. Dr we will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, 
commanded us, saying, Ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons forever. Neither shall ye build houses, nor sow seed, nor plant vineyards, nor nor have any, but all your days ye shall dwell in tents, that ye may live many days in the land where ye are strangers. Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he has charged us to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, nor our daughters, nor to build houses for us to dwell in. Neither have we vineyard, nor field, nor seed, but we have dwelt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. And it came to pass when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up unto the land that we said, Come and let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans, and for fear of the army of the Syrians, so we dwelt at Jerusalem. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, We will not receive, will ye not receive instruction to hearken to my words, saith the Lord. The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, that he hath commanded his sons not to drink wine are performed. For unto this day they drink none, but obey their father, their father's commandment, Notwithstanding, I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but ye hearken not unto me. I have sent also unto you all my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying, Return ye now every man from his evil way, and amend your doings, and go not after other gods to serve them. And ye shall dwell in the land which I have given to you and to your fathers, but ye have not inclined your ear, nor hearkened unto me. Because the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them, but this people have not hearkened unto me. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the evil I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken unto them, but they have not heard, and I have called unto them, but they have not answered. And Jeremiah said unto the house of, Re- of the Rechabites, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father, and kept all his precepts, and, not, and done according unto all that he hath commanded you, therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab the son of Rechab shall not want a man to stand before me forever. So a very interesting story here. And uh, one would have to wonder who these these um, these Rechabites were, as we call them. And I'll just briefly tell you what we know about them. Um, a very interesting uh, history and somewhat mysterious. But these Rechabites apparently were of the lineage of the Kenites. And the Kenites were actually the lineage of Moses' father-in-law, Hobab, he's called. If you look back in Judges, you'll come upon this man, uh, Hobab. They're in chapter 1 and chapter 4. And when they were setting the land there in Israel, the Kenites said, we'll just kind of scuttle down here to the south country here in the desert, and that's where we'll be. We'll just kind of hole up down here, sort of apart from everybody else, and uh, we'll be by ourselves here. And so that's that's what we know about these people. We They do show up in, in Chronicles again, and it tells us that they were scribes. So they, they obviously were people that lived by themselves, and if you're a scribe, you're writing a lot of Scripture. And then in 2 Kings 10, we have this man, Jonadab, that shows up whenever Jehu is uh, executing judgment on the house of Ahab. 
he lights upon this man by the name of Jonadab, and he says to Jonadab, he said, is your zeal as, uh, as um, important to you as mine is to me? And he said, sure it is. And he said, fine. He said, jump in my chariot and come and help me. And so Jonadab and Jehu, they get in their chariot, and, they, and Jonadab aids Jehu in, um, in eliminating the house of Ahab as, as uh, God had commanded him. Again, that's their silence. We don't have much about the Rechabites until we come here to uh, chapter 35 of Jeremiah. And I just read it to you. You understood what it said. But these men, apparently Jonadab, had decided that there were some things he wished for his posterity to do. And he told them to do this. And they did it. And 300 years later, they were still doing it. So is there any clues that we can glean from this short story here today? I'm going to give you some thoughts that I had, and you can do with them what you will. So number one, the, the first clue I get here is these Kenites, if we're backing up now to their, to their ancestors, these Kenites chose to live a life removed from broader society. They, they shifted down into the south part of the desert there, and they lived kind of apart from mainline Israel. We're not sure why. We're not sure why Hobab decided to do that and his people, but that's what they did. But I think that decision lent itself well to their posterity. They were not constantly rubbing, rubbing arms with the, um, with the, the mainline Israel, if you will. And mainline Israel could not keep themselves from worshiping idols. It was a constant battle. Whereas it doesn't seem like maybe the Kenites were, um, were uh, into that so much. And there's a New Testament principle that goes right along with this in 2 Corinthians 6.17 where God tells us that we should come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you, saith the Lord. It seems like it was evident that the uh, children of Israel hankered for the unclean and by removing themselves, the Kenites did not. That is good reason why we live somewhat aloof from broader society. We do not engage fully into all that broad society has to offer us because there is safety and there is good things that happen when we don't do that. Speaking of convictions, I I had to think of the, the, the fact that we, in this church, we either homeschool or we send our children to our private Christian school. And there's a reason for that because it came out of a conviction of a prior generation that we need to do better than the public schools had to offer. And so thus we are recipients of that today. And I hope, I hope that we see that as something that we wish to continue for a long time. Hopefully our convictions are not waning in that. All right. Number two. Jonadab is known prior to this back in first Kings or in second Kings two, when Jehu asked him, about his zeal, Jonadab, um, Jonadab announced that he had zeal as well. And so my point is this. Jonadab was a man of zeal. His faith in God was real. He lived it, and he supported those that lived it as well. I'm going to read to you out of Titus 2. It goes like this. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. I would like to suggest something to you. I would say the foundation of our house in these verses is when we deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. That's what we do. The structure is when we live soberly, righteously, and godly. And then the decor is when we become a peculiar people zealous of good works. I think this is a blueprint for the house of God. There's other people in the Bible that talks about being zealous. Uh, when Jesus cleansed the temple, it said that he did that because the zeal of the house had eaten him up. If you would go back to Numbers 25, you would find a man called Phineas that it said he was so zealous for God that he could not take the the absolute immorality that was taking place all around him, and he took a javelin and he killed a man and a woman because he was so zealous for God. So the question for you and I today is, where is our zeal? Do we have zeal? If I want to be a person of strong conviction and I wish to to pass that on to my children, I will have to be a person that is known to be zealous of good works. A zealous person takes the principles of honesty, self-control, forgiveness, nonconformity, and he puts decor on it. He makes it observable. He makes it attractive. It's something that people say, look at that. I want that too. Number three, John Adab was a man that could evaluate, perceive, and make good decisions for his family based on those observations. And this is kind of the tricky one. He gave, uh, he gave his, his posterity these three uh, rules, if you will. He said, drink no wine and have no vineyards. Plant no fields, so forego owning real estate and farming that real estate, and don't live in houses. Live in tents instead. Now, here's where we got to kind of um, just uh, surmise a little bit. We're not told why he told his posterity not to do these things, but we can guess a little bit. If you go into Deuteronomy, there's two references there in Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8 where Moses told the people, he said, now when you move into the promised land and you have houses, you have vineyards, and you have fields, he names those three things. He said, that is likely going to be the thing that takes you away from God. And I can't help but believe that whenever Jonadab is helping Jehu there uh, go through and annihilate these horrible people there in Israel, that he looked around and he said, you know what? This is exactly how God said it would happen. You would forget God when you had all these good things. And this is what happened. I'm going to go home and tell our family that we're not going to do these things because we don't want to end up here where this house of Ahab and the other nominal Israelites had ended up. And I think this is, this is how we as people of true conviction should conduct ourselves. We should be people that can observe. That's what Jonadab did. He observed. He perceived. He said, this is how it is because of this. He put, he connected the dots. And then he made personal and practical application to himself that translated into spiritual safety for himself and for his family and ultimately in God's blessing there in Jeremiah 35. You know, we could give many illustrations, and I'm going to refrain from doing that for several reasons today. But I want you to think about that. Are you a person that is known for a person of perception? 
Can you look at things and say, this isn't right. We're not going to do this. We're going to make really practical application to my life and my families because we do not want to end up here. Can you connect dots? Can I connect dots? You know, this is, this is what I call modeling for our children. We need to see and, 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 and make boundaries for ourselves. And we need to portray that to our children. Our children need that. They want that. They want to observe their parents doing these things. You know, Jonadab was a thoughtful man, apparently, and he was not afraid to be just a little bit different than status quo. Apparently not. And I can't help but believe that he had several conversations with his sons and his grandsons. Maybe not, but maybe. And he had to explain to them why he was taking the position that he was taking for his spiritual welfare and for theirs. Now, there is one thing that I, I'll throw out for your for your um, evaluation. So just this past winter, I was speaking with one of the instructors at Bible school uh, about this very thing, about this very thing of personal convictions and passing those convictions or making that um, a premise for maybe a family rule, if you will, all right? Nobody else's churches is doing it this way, but we are because we believe this is a good thing and we're going to do it this way. And, and we were talking about people that seem to have been successful in that and some people that do not seem to have been successful in that. And he made this comment, this instructor made this comment, and I think it's an interesting one and probably is um, probably a bit of truth to it. It's, it's not Bible, it's just, it's just for your thought. He said, I think you're allowed to have three rules but not 30. And, and I think he's right about that. And it was interesting to me that that's exactly what John had about. He had three rules, right? That was three of them. I don't know. But the point that, that this man was making is if, if we are so different, just for the sake of being different, that's not going to sit well. That's not going to work. But if we, if we thoughtfully make personal boundaries for ourselves and our families, that makes sense. You know, probably our children will pick up on that. Likely they will. Let's move on. Jonadab, his identification was clear. He identified with the godly and not with the nominal. I've said that several times, but I'd like to just come back and just capitalize on that a little bit. He identified with Jehu and not nominal apostatizing Israel. And, and here's one that I would like to... I hope you understand where, what I'm trying to say when I try to say what I'm going to say. But I believe it is okay for us as parents to point out to our children when we see ungodliness and disobedience in a person or a group of people that claim to be Christians. In other words, we're claiming we're Christians, but there is blatant ungodliness or inconsistency in that life. Those two don't mix. And I think we can have a candid and respectful conversation about those things, and we should. Basically, what we're saying is, this is not okay to God, and because it's not okay to God, it's not okay to us either. We do not condone what God does not. And furthermore, we disdain what God does. And when we see people naming the name of Christ, but they're doing things that God hates, those two don't mix. 
And our, and our children need to know that we, we see that. And um, this is why we don't do a thing that way. This is why we take this path. Likewise, I think it is wise for us as, as parents that, well, let's put it this way. On a broad scale, it is no news to any of you here that if we were to take a, a marker here and we were to draw a line here, and um, and over here is the most, um, I'm going to say the most careful, all right? We'll use that word. And uh, over here is the most thoughtless. All right, I'm, I'm going to use those words for just because that's what I'm going to use. So... In the broad scale of things, I mean, in, in the grand scheme of things, there are people and churches that are very cautious and careful, and then you have people and churches that are very thoughtless. And they, they, they do things that, if you take the, the continuum on out, you, you get into the realm of ungodly, alright? Because eventually that will, that's where that will lead. Now, we as people want to say we're right here. We want to say we're just right in the middle. That's where we're at. All of us. You talk to anybody, Anybody that goes to any church and they'll say their church is smack in the middle. That's where, that's where our church is too. We're in the middle. But now, what about, and the other thing is, when we fellowship with people, we largely fellowship somewhat in that area. Uh, you know, probably some people that are a bit more careful than us, let's say, and maybe some people that we would say are a bit more thoughtless than, than we are, okay? Now, in that whole thing, I'm going to say that let us be careful that as we um, as we live life, how we perceive and how we speak, especially of the people on the left side of that continuum. Because obviously we have chosen not to do certain things here that maybe the people over here that are a bit more, I'll use the word careful, um, are doing, are practicing. They have expressions of, of, of godliness, application of principle that we don't. We have chosen not to do that. But if, if I diss this, if I, if I mock that, and I say this person or that group of people that have a more careful and cautious position than I or we, I mock that, be very careful. Basically what you're, you're setting yourself up is your children will say, well, why do you do what you do? How do you defend that? And for them to rise to higher personal conviction is going to be very, very, very difficult because basically you're sending the message that we are promoting thoughtlessness. We're not promoting carefulness. We're not, con we're not promoting connecting dots and perception. We're, com we're actually promoting thoughtlessness. So I would like to just... I would just like to encourage us in that. Let, it, it's easy for us to think of ourselves as having arrived. We're here. We got it. We figured it out. Anybody that's there, they just haven't caught up to us yet. They, they, need to, they need to think through things a little more. Be careful about that. Be very careful. I don't think we should ever be um, mocking that. Rather, we should be asking the question, what do they see that I don't? Do they see something that I should? Perhaps that's the question we should be asking. All right. The last one, the last point here, and this is almost a disclaimer, and this is why I changed my, my, the title of my message this morning. Apparently, Jonadab's children came to a point where they were willing to embrace personally what Jonadab believed. 
And this is the part that is out of my control as a parent. Paul said in, to the church at Corinth, he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. He recognized that without God in that mix, he could have planted all day, Apollos could have watered all day, but, it, but God needed to be there to give the increase. And that is, that is the challenge I have this morning. We can plant, we can prepare, we can water, we can nurture, we can model, we can do all the things exactly right. But at some point, the next generation must embrace these things all by themselves. And that's the part we can't do for them. It, it has to be something they do personally. And that is where I would like to challenge the front two row of benches and the children in this audience. What are you seeing in your parents that you admire? Where do you wish to be in 20, 30 years? Where do you wish this church to be? Have you thought through why we do things the way we do them? Have you thought through why your parents maybe want you to do things a certain way? Have you had this discussion? Or do you find yourself constantly chafing and um, resisting and um, just a hankering for something better or, or more thoughtless, as you, as you might say? I hope not. But ultimately, it's your choice. It's your choice how you will choose as you uh, as you grow up. And I want to encourage the young people here. Be people of conviction. That, that, that grows on you. I have stronger convictions today than I did when I was 18 and 19. However, it wouldn't have had to be that way. I could have had stronger ones. Um, and by all means, consider, just really consider. Think about where things go if we make certain choices. This is so important. I would like to just conclude with the uh, promise there in verse 19 that God gave the Israelites. I'm sorry, the, the house of recap. He said, because of this, of this generational embracing of the faith, he said, there will never be a man that will not stand before me. Now, I don't know how all to take that verse, but I'm going to conclude this, this way. If we take these principles today that we've looked at through John and Ab here, and we apply them, and our children embrace the faith, and then they, they, they apply them to their children, and we can keep that ball rolling, we will have a good thing in this church 10, 20, 30, 50 years from now. If we choose not to, we'll, we will be wanting, and we will not have a man to stand before the Lord. May God help us to that end.